0: Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as as a listener, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This morning we begin our fall 2019 sermon series, Spiritual and Religious. You can see the, the bulletin insert you have this morning which has also been in our, our fall brochure. This is what that says. Is it describes where we're going in this series. I'm spiritual but not religious. It's a common phrase used by many people today to self-identify as someone who values spirituality and the well-being of mind, body, and spirit while taking issue with organized religion. Even among many Christians, the term religious is often used as a pejorative term with connotations of hypocrisy and legalism and a lack of genuine piety. Uh, my, and, or I should say, our good friend Bruxy Cavey, a meeting house up in Canada, uses religion this way. They say, Bruxy, stop that. Don't do that. Yeah, even my mentor friend Greg Boyd does that. And, and I don't think that that's proper, as we'll see in this series. So we say things like Jesus wasn't religious, or Christianity is not a religion, or that the Christian faith is not about religion. It's about a relationship. But is that really true? Is that entirely accurate to say that sort of thing? If not, where did this modern disdain for religion come from? And I want to ask the question, what is at stake if we merely seek to be spiritual but not religious? And spiritual and religious is a sermon series that invites us to see that spirituality is really a vague individualistic impulse toward the transcendent. But it's not enough to shape us as disciples of Jesus. That's what we'll see religion is for. As the New Testament will attest, there is good in religion. And we'll see where Jesus didn't condemn religion, Jesus condemned false religion. Jesus condemned hypocrisy and rebuked it publicly. He correctly understood that Christian religion was hand, is handed down observance of the church calendar and spirit-infused practices like prayer, scripture, creeds, sacraments, and ancient liturgi- liturgies to properly form us into His image. You see, God doesn't need these things. God doesn't need them. We need them. We need them to be properly formed in our worship. As we'll see in this series, Jesus Himself was religious. So over the next seven weeks, I'll be taking us through a series that will challenge and inspire us to embrace the mystery and the liturgical power of the Christian faith—a way of life that is both spiritual and religious. Remember, if you haven't joined a sermon-based small group, there are handouts in the welcome centers. You can fill one of those out and give it to Pastor Kelly. Uh, if you want to go deeper. In community, if you want to hear God's voice, what is God saying to me? What am I? What am I going to do about it? Our small groups we want to be our primary vehicle for discipleship at Grantham Church. So check those out because some of them have already started meeting. And for those of you who appreciate a, a bird's eye or, or or an overview of the sermon series, here's a quick little summary. This morning's message is entitled "I See That You Are Very Spiritual." I see that you're very spiritual. We're going to look at uh, where this disdain for religion has come from. We're going to look at the trend today of the unaffiliated or the nuns. We're going we're to say, how do we respond to people that say they're spiritual but not religious? And might Jesus require something more of us? We're going to look at that this morning. Next Sunday, in the message, spiritual but not religious, question mark, uh, we're going to properly define what religion is. We're gonna see that whether you admit to it or not, we're all religious. Uh, As Jamie Smith uh, would say, we are all liturgical beings. We all long for repetition, for ritual, for habits. And, And the question has to come up, how are we doing at that church? How are we doing at that? I think we may find that the Protestant Reformation threw a little bit of the baby out with the bath when throwing off religion. Uh, we, it's, it's not necessarily Catholic, it's early church, and we need to recover. Some of those liturgies and, and recognize that we have to be intentional in our spiritual and religious formation. Week three, we'll see that Jesus was religious. We'll look at the ways that Jesus was indeed religious, how he had a creed, the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? The Lord of Israel. How Jesus followed a calendar and festivals, made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, how he attended synagogue faithfully and went to temple faithfully. Jesus prayed at certain times of the day. Jesus would have worn rabbinical colors. Jesus was religious. We're going to see that in week three. Week four, a sermon called Gracious Orthodoxy, we're going to see it is appropriate to confess the Apostles' Creed with the church worldwide, to recognize this is what we share in common and that we can hold to some exclusive beliefs in love and not be jerks about it right? Not be legalistic, uh, not not be pharisaical in our orthodoxy. In week five, we'll look at the power of Christian liturgy, how we can live into liturgy here at Grantham Church. And in week six, we'll look at religious rhythms of grace. What does a personal liturgy look like for you? What, is, what are these holy habits and routines look like for you so that you can be intentional in spiritual disciplines and proper spiritual formation? And then we'll end the sermon series with something ancient, something new. We say that we are convergent here at Grantham Church. We are holding together the ancient to the traditional with the modern and the contemporary. We don't, get, we don't get to make this stuff up as we go. And there is a rich history and rich traditions that we wanna take with us each, in each generation as we recontextualize the gospel. What would it look like if we weren't a church, if we were a church like that, a church on mission being convergent? Why are we doing this? What is the purpose of this series? Well, as we'll see this morning, there is increasing secularism uh, 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 around us, especially here in the United States, and there is actually a revival of sorts going on, you may not know this, where there is a a allure to liturgy. Uh, the culture that we live in, where we're running and going constantly, we have a screen in our face constantly that we are, we are obsessed with technology. People are longing for the transcendent, right? Uh, they're, they're longing for for something more. Uh, they want to know that they're connected to, to ancient history. Uh, that that every Sunday we we, uh, all confess together the same same creed, and we all partake in communion, which we've been doing for 2,000 years. And do you know that there's actually a LifeWay, that's a Southern Baptist group, a LifeWay study that found that if those who are unchurched want to go to church, they are choosing not to go to churches in shopping malls, but cathedral-type churches. They're seeking the transcendent. They want a faith that embraces mystery. And we're gonna talk about that in this series. That is why we're doing it. We can be a church that offers good news to those who only see bad news. And all of this is fitting and timely for us as we're seeing the Christendom Project in the West come to an end where we've tried to force our faith on the world It doesn't work, right? Because Jesus isn't about power over, but power under And the kingdom of God doesn't come through the kingdoms of the world and through the methods of the kingdoms of the world. The kingdom of God doesn't come by by vying for power, by trying to win the culture wars. And we're seeing that this actually is antithetical to the good news of Christ. And so as this Christendom project comes to an end, I think we need to admit with N.T. Wright the current state of affairs. N.T. Wright says this in his book by the same name, Spiritual and Religious. He says, those who flatter themselves that they still live in a Christian society today are simply out of touch with reality. We've been drifting towards various sorts of paganism, and it is time to call spades by their proper names. In fact, we, we, we have some data to back this up. I Look at what the Pew Research Center has put out just a couple years ago. Actually, a study that was done in 2014. And they ask people, what is your religious tradition? You know, and they have like Christian and Buddhist and Muslim and and different options there. And and there at the end, they have none. And 22.8% of Americans identified as unaffiliated, we call them nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. They're the nuns. Religious nuns, a shorthand used to refer to people who self-identify as atheists or agnostics, as well as those who say their religion is nothing in particular. And made up roughly 23, think about that, 23% of the U.S. adult population in 2014. That's 46 million Americans. And it's rising. If you want to see how quickly the religious landscape is changing, just last year, the American Family Survey reported that as high as 36% of Americans now identify as nuns. Now, that seems a little high, but we'll see if further studies confirm that. 36% of Americans identify as nuns. And I find this interesting, just something I wanted to show you real quickly. Racial and ethnic composition among the nuns. 68% of the nuns are white. I, I find that interesting that because it's mostly white people that have furthered the Christendom idea. And as often happens, the pendulum swings in the opposite direction. We've given up on that project. And for some people, they've given up on religion completely because of the hypocrisies of the church. And take a look at how this is reflected across the generations. You'll see it across generations. Uh, Gen X makes up 28% of the nuns. Older millennials, 22%. Younger millennials, the same. And there are various explanations for this. Uh, uh, some of those, those could be that we are more, it is more socially acceptable to be unaffiliated today, where folks used to be nominally Christian, right? Because it wasn't appropriate for you not to identify as a Christian once upon a time. Now people don't see a problem with just admitting what the truth is. They, they are not really Christians. Another explanation could be political backlash. Young adults are fed up with the church's entanglement in politics. Amen to that. We're sick of it. We're tired of seeing it. Just go watch the Netflix documentary, The Family. You'll, you'll get a taste of what we're, what we're talking about here. This isn't the way the kingdom comes. And a lot of people, as I said, are tired of it. People are getting married later in life. That may have something to do with it because we studies show that when folks, uh, maybe they, they go to college and they drop out of church and they get back into church when they get married and have a family. So people are getting married at, uh, later in life and having a family later in life, and so they're dropping out of church for longer periods of time. People, uh, people are losing trust in institutions. Uh, particularly religious institutions because of all the scandals that we see. Another explanation is the growth of of, uh, the Internet and social media, altering a sense of community and devotion to civic and religious organizations. And that's not just the church, but a lot of nonprofits are seeing that. They're experiencing this change in society. But again, notice that nuns are on the rise across the board. You baby boomers, you don't get away with anything. It's 22% for you too, who would say, we're nuns. We don't affiliate with any particular religion. I've often wondered if the baby boomers are partly responsible for Gen X and older millennials, but we won't be too hard on them. In her book, Choosing Our Religion, The Spiritual Lives of America's Nuns, Elizabeth Drescher says this, we can see from the data that far from being a fringe phenomenon among the unchurched in over-educated latte-slinging corridors of the country, unaffiliation is part of the religious and spiritual structure of every social sector. Yet according to Pew in 2017, listen to this, 72% of nuns, believe in God. 72% of nuns believe in God or some sort of higher power. 75% of all Americans consider themselves spiritual persons. You see what's happening here? 25% say they are spiritual but not religious. And what do people mean by that? Barna has actually divided the spiritual but not religious crowd into two primary groups. Again, 25% who are spiritual but not religious divide into these groups. The first group would say they are those who self-identify as spiritual but say their faith is not very important in their lives. So they may go to church, you know, uh, they're creasters. They go to church on Christmas and Easter. Christers, right? You've heard that before. Uh, or, you know, they don't, they don't pray very often or at least regularly. They don't follow any spiritual disciplines. Uh, these would be some spiritual but not religious people. They don't really need the church. I think that group would probably fit in there too. You know, they, it's just their personal relationship with Jesus, and they can have church in Starbucks or something. The second group Barnett identifies, the spiritual but not religious, are those who self-identify as spiritual but not, don't claim any faith. They're atheist, agnostic, or unaffiliated. And you, you ask yourself, how, how did this happen? How did we get to this place in America? Especially if, if you've been under, and I would say, the illusion that America has been Christian. Uh, it never has been. Uh, unless you want to count the genocide of Native Americans and, and slavery as Christian, it's never been Christian. And as we'll see this morning, a good bit of those founding fathers were deists. They despised Christianity. But you've got to ask, how did this happen? How did we get here? And to understand how we get here, we need to back up a couple hundred years. This I'm spiritual but not religious has been years in the making. If you're not familiar with the Enlightenment, that is the 18th century European intellectual and philosophical movement, which brought us some good things. I won't admit that. Brought us some good things. And was, with the Enlightenment came a surge of ideas, of inventions, of scientific progress, of, of the promotion of individual liberty and intolerance. These are good things. These are good things. However, it also gave us our modern disdain for religion. Uh, Again, people reacting to the Christendom project. We've had it with that, we're done with that. And thinkers like Voltaire, you may have heard of Voltaire, the historian and philosopher who inspired the French Revolution, was a deist. That is, a deist is someone who believes there is a God, he created the world, but he's not really involved uh, in things, he's not personal, you know, it's like he, he, he started as a, a top, he spun a top, and he's just let it go, and it's just up to us to sort out the world. That's what a deist, that's what a deist is. God's far away, he's not really up in our, up in our Kool-Aid, in our business, he doesn't really care about that. It, it's just left to us. And Voltaire, what I find is interesting, and I don't know if this is just a, a rumor or legend or whatever, but he had such a disdain for Christianity, he proclaimed that in his, in his lifetime it would come to an end. Of course, it didn't, and Voltaire met his end, and then they turned his house into a printing press for Bibles. I don't say God doesn't have a sense of humor. There's Thomas Paine, you know, I can list a bunch of people, I just list a few. Thomas Paine, his Age of Reason pamphlet promoted deism and rationalism and attacked Orthodox Christianity, greatly shaping American thought and culture. Thomas Jefferson, you all know Thomas Jefferson, helped pen the Constitution, is another deist who took out his secular scissors, enlightenment scissors and cut up the Gospels, reducing Jesus down to a good guy whose life and death should inspire us to be moral and kind to one another, like hug a peasant near you and be willing to die for your principles, but nothing else. We don't believe in the supernatural and the miracles and that kind of thing. Uh, it, you know, Jesus is just a good guy, and we just these Christians have just made up the rest. And then in the 19th century, there were skeptics and other critics of religion, like Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, who said, the old truths, he said, the old truths of Christianity are going away that religion has gone as far as it can go, and now it's time to evolve, time to grow up, and time to move on from such childish fantasies. It makes you think of the psychologist Sigmund Freud who said, God is just that, a fantasy. It is us longing for father just projected onto a cosmic screen to say, we're not alone and somebody cares, but it's just to help us to cope that's what Karl Marx said religion is the opiate of the masses another 19th century thinker who has influenced and shaped the western culture today Bertrand Russell the atheist who wrote a book why i'm not a christian has influenced people like Richard Dawkins a, a staunch may dare i say arrogant new atheist today an evolutionary biologist who rails against against god and against religion of any kind and so, what we're seeing today has, folks, been years in the making. This didn't just happen yesterday or last decade or even the 60s, although that didn't help. This has been years in the making. What began in Europe traveled across the pond, and you could easily argue that it was kneaded into the very dough that would become the United States of America. This is how we're being baked, folks. (laughs) Okay, I didn't mean that as a drug reference, but (laughs) heaven may look down on America today and think we are all on drugs. I'm going to argue this morning that we should repent of false religion, Repent of false religion and acknowledge our hypocrisies. Uh, that, that we that we need not cast off true religion to do that. Uh, for when we do, we're adopting a secular worldview and giving into the spirit of the age. Uh, the author and pastor Brian Zahn puts it this way. He said most 21st century Westerners are very reluctant to identify themselves as religious, but this is a mistake. We've surrendered to the Enlightenment's assault upon religion. We have saluted Voltaire and Nietzsche. Even Christians have done this. Today, the insipid mantra is, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. The idea is that, that spiritual is acceptable. To be religious is not. Zahn says, but the I'm not religious, but spiritual motto is really just a modern rejection of time tested wisdom in favor of a make it up as you go approach. Now, what does Brian mean, a modern rejection of the time tested wisdom or tradition in favor of a make it up as you go approach? Well, that's some of what we're going to be unpacking in this series, so be patient. We can't talk about it all in one message. This is just the beginning this morning, but for this morning, Let's begin with Jesus in John chapter 4. It won't be on your screen this morning, so if you have your Bible, would you open it up to John chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible, there are a few Bibles in front of you. Make sure it's not a hymnal. That won't get you anywhere. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus intentionally walks through Samaria if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard a little bit about Samaria. Samaria is the place where Jews don't go. If you need to go from, from Judea to get the, to the Galilee, you go across the Jordan and around Samaria. And the reason is, is because Samaria are seen as, as um, uh, syncretists. They have mixed the religion of Judaism with, with other faiths and other ideas. Uh, You you can see them, like they're the people on the other side of the tracks that Jews don't want to mix and mingle with. And so Jesus intentionally goes through Samaria instead of around Samaria, and he's going to have a conversation with the woman at the well here in John 4. Now, you've probably, again, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this story before, and you've seen various elements, um, you know, our attention drawn to various elements in this passage, but maybe not quite in this way that I'm going to do this morning. So I want you to follow me and see what I think Jesus has to say about our current situation. John chapter four, beginning of verse four. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, it was about noon. Now, the other thing you need to remember, particularly it reminds us about Jacob as well here, that uh, back in the divided kingdom, right, when David's kingdom was split in two, there was the kingdom of the north, Israel, and there was the kingdom of the south, uh, uh, um, Judah, and Jerusalem is the capital. And because of this split, you had two different temples set up. This is going to come to play here in just a moment. Two different temples. And then after the exile, when people fled back, the mixed race of people made their way back to Samaria and continued to worship there. Right, So you've got pure worship by the Jews in Jerusalem and then worship by the Samaritan, Samaritans in what was old Israel. So here Jesus is. He walks to this well-known spot, Jacob's well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, verse 7, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is alone. That's what John wants us to know. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, right away, Jesus is letting her know, though she doesn't understand it right away, what he's there on assignment for, to give this woman living water. Don't you know we all thirst, right? We all thirst deep down spiritually. We thirst. Jesus is here to quench our thirst. Verse eleven. Sir, the woman said, "You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water?" Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Look at what Jesus said. Verse thirteen. He answered, "Everyone who drinks this water, pointing to the well." Jesus said, they'll be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give to them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I always feel like I have to stop when we say eternal life because many of us have been conditioned in the church just to think of immortality. But Jesus is not exclusively thinking of immortality. Ionos is the word for eternal, and it refers to the age to come, when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Jesus is saying, I've come to give you that kind of life right here and right now. That's good stuff. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have have not to keep coming back to this well to draw water still not getting it, Jesus gets her attention this way. He says, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And unfortunately, a lot of American Christians have read this as, as almost condemning of this woman. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus saying, I know you have needs." I know you've been hurt. I know why you're here at this well all by yourself. You are thirsty for more than just this water. Isn't that good? Look what she says in response. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. (laughs) That's right. More than that. Our Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's still trapped in that that mode of thinking. Once again, Jesus says, Woman, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain. You can see Jesus sort of pointing behind them. Not on this mountain, nor in Jerusalem. It's not about the place that you worship. But look what Jesus said. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. I'm going to come back to that. Keep verse 22 in your mind. Verse 23, Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worship, worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and the truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, the one called the Christ, He is coming, and when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one who speaks to you, am he. What a moving story. If you look at verse 22, I want you to, to key in on this verse. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. You say, Jesus, you're being a little exclusive. Well, you know, Jesus wasn't really concerned about that. What Jesus is concerned about is giving us eternal life. And Jesus knows there's only one way to get that. John will say later in chapter 14, verse 6, many of you know this, I myself am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody can know God except through me. And look at this, folks. Jesus sees himself coming in the tradition, in the story of the Jewish people. Jesus is a religious Jew, and he sees that what he is doing is through the revelation of God through the Jewish religion. Jesus himself makes it plain. Salvation is from the Jews. And what Jesus is saying is, this is the lineage. This is the narrative by which you come to know God in the Spirit. If you want to be spiritual, you have to listen to Jesus because Jesus shows us the way to God. You know, if we've received a revelation passed down in our religion whereby we are called to accept Jesus, His life and His words, how do we go about living then in and engaging with a world that is increasingly spiritual but not religious? A world that resists the idea of there being one exclusive path, one religion that we can come to, to fully know God, who we are, why we are here, and where it's all going. We need to think about that. How do we do that? Because Jesus is laying down some exclusive truths, isn't he? And because Jesus is saying salvation comes through this revelation that God has given to the Jews and now which I proclaim to you. So how do we, in an increasingly secular world, a spiritual but not religious world, proclaim this truth without being religious jerks? Well, on top of taking Jesus seriously and his example seriously, as we see in John 4. I believe Paul shows us how in Acts chapter 17. If you would, turn to the book of Acts. That's the very next book there in your Bible, in the New Testament. The book of Acts chapter 17. We pick up here in verse 16. Paul goes to Athens, and this is a really big deal. This Jew from Tarsus is going to the center of of all that is classical, uh, where wisdom uh, can be found, where the philosophers of of old uh, have lived and died. And Paul is going to this place that, that seems to have the corner on truth, and he goes there to proclaim the gospel. Look at what verse 16 says as Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy. He doesn't just sit around in the coffee shop. Uh, He doesn't just sit around, um, you know, wasting time twiddling his thumbs. He makes himself useful by proclaiming the gospel. Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews. There would have been a synagogue in Athens. He reasoned with the Jews and with other God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Eventually, verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Uh, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Uh, I, no offense to, to Brits, but I hear this in a British way. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Uh, This is where they discuss all the latest ideas. He said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are preaching. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. Uh, he, he gives us Luke gives us a little, a little uh, parenthetical note there. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. How would you like to get paid to do that? And verse twenty two, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus in front of all of these wise people. He said, "People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious." For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant, that is you don't know, about the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you today. I've come to tell you who that God is. And Paul will, of course, go on connecting this to the Old Testament Hebrew story, that the God that they worship in ignorance is the God over all gods. In fact, all the other gods are false. And this God will one day judge the living and the dead, and he has, he has made this known to us by sending Jesus, his son, to be crucified and raised from the dead. And of course, as you know, the rest of this story, they scoff at Paul, most of them, a few believe. They scoff at Paul, though, having a hard time believing this message and they just cast him off. But notice Paul's approach. This is what I want us to pay attention to this morning. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Verse 22 is not a slap in the face. And I think maybe we've often read this verse this way. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Uh, You know, he he said, I see that you are very religious. Paul's not insulting them. Paul says, you know, this is, this is my way in. This is how I can, I can talk to them about the good news of Christ. I mean, they are, they, are, they are so careful as to have a statue to an unknown God as to not leave someone else out and to not offend a God that they don't know about. These are pretty spiritual, or as Paul's words, religious people. When you think about that, church, I want to encourage you to see the I'm spiritual but not religious crowd as an opportunity, as an opportunity to first ask when someone says this, I'm spiritual but not religious, what do you mean? Why do you say that? What do you mean by that? Also, a chance to listen to their story. What are their experiences with religion that has them turned off to it? Listen. Listen how they grew up in the church. Listen to how the church treated them. Listen to their experiences with God's people. Also see this opportunity and eventually to challenge them to consider that Jesus himself was religious. And what do you do with his exclusive claims? As we'll see in this series, I hope to be able to equip us with some words for conversation. Again, see their admission, folks, of of being spiritual as a way into their life and into conversation. After all, they, they are recognizing that there's more to life than the physical, material stuff. If they're saying they're spiritual but not religious, at least they've not bought into scientism. Well, all there is is science. All there is is the material world, the physical stuff. No, they're saying they know there's something more. They're just not certain what it is. You see, they are knowingly or unknowingly acknowledging that the God who is Spirit has made us in His image and created us with a yearning for the transcendent, a yearning for the mysterious, and a yearning for spiritual things. I think that's partly what the writer of Ecclesiastes had in mind in chapter 3, verse 11. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has planted eternity in to the human heart, planted eternity into the human heart. You know, that, that, what that says to me is that in all of us, we have a longing for transcendence. You, you, this, this longing that there is something more is a signpost. It's a signpost to that something more. And again, our scriptures recognize this awareness and this longing for something more, to be a desire from and a desire for the one who created us, sustains us, and loves us beyond human comprehension. Not a distant God of deism, but a God that we can know personally because he's been revealed in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Brothers and sisters, this is why the psalmist writes these words. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and when can I go and meet with God? Do you recognize those spiritual yearnings In yourself? Whether you say, I'm just spiritual but not religious, or you don't have a problem with religion, do you recognize those yearnings? And are you following those yearnings to the God who's been revealed in Jesus? Have you taken Jesus seriously? Have you looked at His life for yourself? Have you listened to His teachings, even these exclusive claims? And finally, this morning, I'd like us to consider these following questions for reflection and for response. Leaning and listen to how the Spirit is speaking to you, if you would. Number one, how are you feeling about our current cultural shifts away from religion? How does that make you feel? Be aware of those feelings this morning. Does it alarm you, or do you see this as an opportunity for the church? Number two, despite the growing animosity toward religion in the church, are you able to listen and learn from spiritual people who are open to God, as we see the Apostle Paul was, and as he found a way into conversation? And number three, have you been pulled into the modern assault on religion? As a follower of Jesus, have you been pulled into this modern assault on religion? I want want to ask you this morning to think about that. And maybe to rethink that this morning. How might God be calling you to open your heart up to the beauty of the Christian religion? And I used that word this morning intentionally. The beauty of the Christian religion. Folks, I think we're going to find in this series that there is something beautiful about the Christian faith. And God wants us to live into it. And my prayer for you is it has become a prayer I have been praying. God make me more religious. Jesus was religious, and I want to be like him. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. God, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, and you would encourage us, Lord, where we need to be encouraged. I pray, Lord, that you would make us aware this morning of this assault upon religion. God, that we would see that some of it is a result of the church not looking like Jesus. And where that has happened, Lord, help us to repent. But God, we pray that we wouldn't throw the baby out with the bath. We pray that our hearts would be open to see, Jesus, how you were religious And how we need inherited traditions, practices, holy habits, the confession of creeds, the church calendar, communion, to be the people that you've called us to be. Lord Jesus, bless us in this endeavor as you draw us closer to yourself that we might be a light to the secular world around us.